Hey everyone, this is Chris Hadley, welcoming you to another edition of the Viewfinder Podcast. When trying to understand a controversial topic that has passionate advocates on both sides of the issue, good storytelling, be it through reporting, documentary film, or fictionalized situations captured in any medium, can frame any contentious subject with a significant degree of clarity. One of those contentious subjects, the right of a woman to seek an abortion, has been debated since the Supreme Court's historic 1973 decision to affirm that right in the famous Roe v. Wade case. In the decades since the Court's 7-2 ruling, conservative politicians and activists have clashed with their liberal counterparts over the future of a woman's right to choose, while several state legislatures have passed laws that have either severely restricted or all but outlawed abortions. As female reproductive rights remain under attack in several states, my guests, the co-creators of the acclaimed web series Control-Alt-Delete, Roni Geba and Margaret Ketch, are standing up for those rights and for the women who exercise them through an art that often becomes its own form of activism in complicated times like these, comedy. Praised by publications like the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and Ms. Magazine for humorously yet realistically portraying reproductive health care and the women who seek it, the first season of Control-Alt-Delete consisted of character-centered stories, all based on real people. Season 2 of the show now takes place on a typical day at a woman's clinic where abortion procedures are, as in real life at Planned Parenthood and other facilities, only one of many services provided to patients. In fact, the entire season was based on true stories that have emanated from reproductive health clinics across the country. The cast includes American Horror Story's Naomi Grossman, returning to control Alt-Delete in her primetime Emmy-nominated role of Lorna, who always offers the clinic's patients and staff words of wisdom and encouragement. Joining control Alt-Delete in Season 2 is legendary Ed Begley Jr., who many of you will know from his years on St. Elsewhere, along with roles in Veronica Mars, the new ABC comedy Bless This Mess, plus Young Sheldon and Better Call Saul, among many roles in his illustrious career. He plays the clinic's smart, skilled, yet quick-with-a-joke physician, Dr. Rosenblatt. Now, this season's eight-episode storyline features not just the intertwined stories of the clinic's staff and the people who need their help, but also the staff's attempts to work while anti-abortion protesters march at the clinic's entrance. Also, what better way to make the employee's workday more dramatic than by having a mysterious pizza box, which could have a bomb inside of it, linger outside. In total, Control-Alt-Delete is funny, heartfelt, and relevant given the increasing amount of anti-abortion laws and the backlash to those laws from women throughout the nation. No matter what side of the reproductive rights issue you lean towards, though, watching Control-Alt-Delete will give you a lot to laugh about and a lot to think about when it comes to the topic of abortion in America. Here now, my interview with the talents who made Control-Alt-Delete possible, Roni Geba and Margaret Ketch. Now, what and or who inspired you to create Control-Alt-Delete? Well, uh, this is Roni. Um, when Margaret and I moved to LA separately, not together, although we seem to do, do everything sort of uh, around the same time, like we even got abortions at the same clinic uh, a few years apart. Um, we realized that we uh, wanted to make material together, and so we made a short. It did 
and literally we had no idea what we we're doing. We we're gonna shoot it with a Python, then my friend who's a DP offered to help us and, and it became it it was it was still like shoot at our friend's house, everybody gets pizza kind of thing. But it ended up getting into a fairly good film festival and we were like, Oh, looks like we maybe can do this. So then we um, decided to jump in and write a feature which is a very rookie mistake. Uh, and then as we were doing that, we sort of realized, oh, this is going to take us like five to ten years. But in the meantime, what do you want to do? And Margaret said, let's explore the idea of a, a digital short form of web series. And I said, okay, what do you want it to be about? She said, abortion. And I was like, cool, but only if it's funny. And she said, of course. <laughs> because it's on... Um, when we both had our abortions, again, separately, not together, we had a similar experience where we went online to try and find stories in the media that reflected our own experiences, and we came up with literally nothing. Um, in the last couple of years, there have been tiny little things here and there, an episode of a show here and there that has reflected more, something that's closer to our experiences, but there was nothing at the time. It was mostly just um, very young girls or women who were very fraught about their decision and ended up having a baby. That was the only story that I saw told in the media when I had my abortion, and that wasn't me. I was in my 20s. I um, was not fraught at all. Um, it was a very clear decision for me, and I was relieved afterwards. I didn't have guilt. I didn't have shame, and that's very common, but that's not often depicted in the media. And so... Um, that women don't have shame. We, the women don't have shame. So the, the reason that we really wanted to explore, um, to explore all these stories of all these different women was so that every woman who heard the story could relate to somebody there. They could say, oh, that person's like me. Oh, that person's like me. And that would take the shame and the stigma out of it. Um, and we wanted to tell these stories um, not with a political Best, although we are both very politically active, but just simply telling stories. Um, because comedy has a history of changing uh, the way the public views something, whether it's I Love Lucy with interracial couples, or Will and Grace with homosexuality, or Transparent with a transgender journey. Storytelling and comedy has this history. So we wanted to do the same thing with this incredibly normal subject. As you mentioned, the abortion debate has always been a hot topic politically, and especially now, where more states have signed very restrictive laws that have severely restricted the re reproductive rights of women. In what ways yeah. has this show shown a light on the importance of those rights and on the ongoing debate over those rights in America? Not just through the show's comedy, but also through the characters and the comedic sure. situations that are portrayed in it. Well, what I think is really interesting is that, as Margaret said, we're not necessarily trying to be political in our storytelling, right? We're not saying like, hey, look what's going on, this is important. What we're doing is showing, you know, in season one, these seven women's stories and saying, hey, look, here's a lady, she's just like you, this is a very normal procedure, let's all calm down. And in season two, we're showing, hey, look, here's a workplace. It's a workplace like any other workplace. People work here. They're funny with one another. They have relationships. And, oh, by the way, they do abortions there. And by doing that, 
what we're saying is this is normal. Let's normalize this conversation. Let's take a step back, everybody, and calm down and realize that these are just human beings, just like you and me. So in, in the way that we uh, create the show, it's not necessarily a, okay, here we go, uh, we're going to tackle all these issues. However, what happens is when we release the show, those conversations start happening, whether they happen for people who are just watching the show individually or whether they're happening on our social media. That's where the debate starts to happen, like the debate uh, rages of, you know, are we even allowed to have a show that treats a person with comedy? Um, why are these women pro-choice? Why is this show pro-choice? And, and for us, that's really the ultimate goal is to say, like, hey, here's a show. We're going to make you laugh a little. When you laugh, your guard's going to come down. And then maybe you'll be able to have a conversation with somebody else about this instead of just shouting at one another and not listening. Um, Margaret, would you uh, have anything else to add to that or... Did I, did I get it? <laughs> I, I think we did great. Yeah, you, you, you definitely did. And um, one thing I noticed, especially when watching it, is that it's funny. The characters are funny. The situation is funny. But at the same time, it's not preachy. It's not something where it has, it leans one way or another. It's, like, it's not telling you how to think. It's just telling you it, there has to be some kind of a debate after you've watched this. And that is... I think that's the best way of going about it. Thank you so much. That was absolutely our intention with it. Now, whereas the show's first season focused solely on the lives of the clinic's patients, season two follows a day in the life of the clinic's patients and the staff. How did that approach to the season's main arc influence the comedy presented in each episode? It's interesting. Uh, Margaret and I were literally just talking about this. The, the difference between doing sort of one-off, here's a character, here's a character, here's a character, versus sort of a serialized day, is the ability to really delve more deeply into character. And one of the things that I feel uh, makes us so lucky is that Margaret and I approach comedy a little bit differently. I come from a comedy background, and Margaret comes more from a theater background. And so for me, I'm like, ah, lift it up, knock it down, let's make it go. And Margaret is like, no, let's tell a story first. And so between the two of us, what we find is sort of that happy medium where we get to tell jokes that are funny, but they're all based on the situation and the characters, and, they, and they're true to the story. And what's fun about that is that in a serialized story, like season two instead of season one, is that you can introduce a character in episode one and really develop her in episode two and three, so that when she does something really, really funny in episode four, it's even more delicious and funny than it could have been if it were a one-off. And so that's sort of the power of having uh, a serialized story is that it allows us to really get to know these people, and then the comedy isn't just a kind of joke. The comedy is, it, it comes out of the truth of how this person is interacting with her situation or with the people around her. Speaking of which, talk about the main characters that are part of season two. What are they like? What are their relations to each of the characters, both the staff and the patients? And overall, how do they factor into the ordinary and sometimes extraordinary moments that take place during the one day that's chronicled in season two of these of the series? Well, uh, 
one of the things that I loved is that all of not all, but I would say most of these characters are based on real people or an amalgamation of real people that we interviewed. So we interviewed um, a bunch of people, both for season one and for season two. In season one, that we interviewed people who had abortions. In season two, we interviewed a lot of uh, people who work at independent clinics all over the United States. And so when we were thinking about these people, there's sort of, there, were, there was sort of a, a two-fold way we were thinking about it. You know, the, the one way is sort of when you think about archetypes in comedy, right? So you meet the straight person, the straight man. Uh, and so if you look at the relationship between the two ladies at the front desk, one of them is the straight man and one of them is kooky, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you know, the, the kooky one, the intern, she's based on a real story. That person, you know, we, we talked to a clinician who talked about this millennial who was interning at, uh, at her clinic. And, and so that storyline is, you know, based on, of course, we imagined it further. Um, same with uh, the doctor. So when I had my abortion, my doctor not only told me jokes, but also found out that I was that I did comedy, and so then he asked me to tell him a joke while I was having an abortion. Wow. And so I think that, like to me, that is just hilarious and, and so and amazing. And so I felt very strongly that you know when we wrote season one, we were going to include the doctor, and so season two, you know, we just got to develop it further because season two was about the clinic. And the thing that, and, and again, I'm going to um, shout out Margaret here. The thing that Margaret did so brilliantly as we were writing this is that she made sure that everyone led with love. So there's sort of two ways to approach comedy when you're doing an ensemble comedy. There's the, oh, we're going to watch everyone bigger um, and they're all kind of gross people. And that's really fun to watch sometimes. Like, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Like, all those people, they're not great human beings. Um, and then there's shows where all the people might be flawed and a mess, but ultimately they lead with love with one another. Um, and a good example of that is like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or The Good Place. And so Margaret, for her, when we were talking sort of about the structure and how we're going to write this, it was really important to her that in our ensemble, no matter how idiotic, you know, they might they might be or what they might do, that ultimately they treat each other with love and they treat each other with respect and that they're all working towards the common goal of making sure their clinic is running, making sure that the clinic has funding, making sure that, you know, everyone feels taken care of and safe when they walk through, whether they're, they work there or whether they're there for medical services. Um, and, and it was really important to us that, again, the comedy laid into that. So when we see the relationships between people, you know, we have layers of comedy. And, and one of the things is, you know, we have imagined so many more episodes and seasons of this that to us, when we were building their relationships, we had even, like an even deeper understanding of like, you know, Ellen, the zero population counselor, and Joan, the woman who runs the clinic, but what we don't know, and it's not explicitly expressed, I think, in any of the episodes of season two, is that they're sisters-in-law. Mm. And so they have, like, a different relationship than just, you work for me and you've worked for me for 10 years. Yeah. And, and that's a story that maybe will come out in a future season. So that's basically the way that you reflected the real-life experiences of the people you base these characters on through their fictional personas in season two and you basically exaggerated those for comedic impact, correct? 
Yeah. Although a couple of them didn't need much exaggeration. Yeah. And you got a great cast in season two. Ed Begley Jr. plays the doctor who cracks jokes, and you had Naomi Grossman, the Emmy nominee, returning from season one. Just very impressive. Thank you. Yeah, we're very lucky to have Besides the critical acclaim and awards honors that this show has received, how have viewers reacted to it and the way it handles its subject matter? You know, we've actually been uh, kind of surprised. When we first launched season one, we were really bracing ourselves for an onslaught of negativity and vitriol. And we were we were really pleasantly surprised um, instead with an onslaught of gratitude and appreciation. I mean, don't get me wrong, there have been definitely some people who are pretty angry about what we're doing, but the amount of people who have been excited and um, relieved to hear stories like themselves, that has way overtaken the negativity. So um, the thing that we love the most is when we do a screening or a film festival and someone comes up to us afterwards and they say, hey, I've never told anyone this before, but I had an abortion. And they feel really free to do that because we're talking about it in this really kind of different way. Um, Or for example, Something really amazing that happened the other day was someone made judge me privately over social media. Um, she's a 13-year-old girl in the UK, and she um, used to be anti-choice. Now she is pregnant and she needs an abortion. And um, she said that looking at our posts really helped um, helped grow her perspective on the issue and change her stance. And so it's those kinds of things, those little those little individual impacts that we could have that really has been um, the greatest joy that we've gotten out of launching these. So it's helping helping individuals um, and hearing their stories, that has really been incredibly fulfilling for both of us. And to add to that, um, a couple things. One is, don't get us wrong, we still get our fair share of your mother should have avoided you and, you know, vitriol. It's just that the overwhelming response is, you know, women telling us like, oh, I didn't know how much I needed this show to exist. Um, and, and, but, you know, last season, Glenn Beck yelled at us on his show. I mean, we weren't live on the show. He just was yelling into space <laughs> and named us. And then, you know, for a few weeks, we had an onslaught of, people being really angry at us on social media. It's only a few days. It didn't last that long. Yeah. Um, and, and every day there's a couple of really mean posts, but I would say for every couple of really mean posts, there's so much more love and appreciation. Um, but the other story I'm going to tell is in that, you know, back and forth and back and forth that happens on our social media, a woman uh, made sort of a, a, a comment that gave us pause. And, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, it's all very well and nice to have choice, but if you can't afford it, it doesn't matter. And so I reached out to her and I, and on social media, you know, on Messenger, and I said, are you okay? Or is that like a for instance? And she told us her story. No, she was not okay. She uh, was in a, a not positive relationship with a man. She already had, she's a single mom. She has a child. She uh, was 
off of work because she had a back injury and when she went to go to the hospital to go get her surgery, they were like, oh, well, we can't give you the surgery because you're pregnant. And she couldn't afford the abortion. And she said, I don't want to have more kids and not with this man especially. I don't know what to do. I called Planned Parenthood. I can't afford it. And so we're going back and forth. And then somebody else separately reached out to us from an abortion fund and said, hey, is that woman okay? And we said, no, she's not. And then we were able to connect those two, again, complete strangers to us through social media, so that the woman from the abortion fund was able to give this lovely lady from Iowa the funding that she needed to be able to afford an abortion. And all three of us, Margaret, myself, and the woman from the abortion fund, were able to sort of like counsel her on the day of through all of her feelings and her and her fears and how she felt relieved afterward and that she felt guilty for feeling relieved and and we were able to all have this like really kind thoughtful conversation with this complete stranger while she was going through this pretty dramatic moment in her life and it was all because we randomly made a show one day and boom this woman watched it and boom she commented and boom we got to you know be of service to her and that to me is like As filmmakers, how have you managed to balance both the comedic aspect of the series with its strong social issues commentary? And to add to that, what challenges and responsibilities have you faced in balancing both sides of the show? Well, we really wanted to make sure that um, we didn't kind of tiptoe around anything. We have a story in the second season that's based on one of our friends. Um, it's very, very much true to life, and we really didn't exaggerate anything at all in her story. Um, who She had to have an abortion in her second trimester. She was 15 and a half weeks pregnant when she found out there was a chromosomal abnormality um, and that her um, that her fetus wouldn't make it. And even if it did make it to birth, then that would die a very painful death. So she made a really hard choice because it was very much wanted. And... Um, so we, we, it was really important to us to show that because that's not really shown um, at all in media. We haven't seen any other um, TV show or web series um, that has depicted that. So when you are writing it, at first we were a little bit too careful with it. It was a little bit too precious. And we read it in um, a writing lab and people were like, no, 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 you're, you're being too careful. And we were like, oh, yeah, we don't want to do that. We really want to continue to write the way we've been writing. So that um, that's, it's really important to us when we are um, when we're crafting these stories that we stay true to the tone and the humor of the show. Um, and like Roni says, leading with love in every single story and not tiptoeing around things that are difficult, not being precious with the stories, but just coming from a place of heart and humor. And, and the responsibility of making sure it's true. And, and that's something where Margaret would catch me being like, that would never happen at a clinic, don't do that. We can't write that, that would never happen. Because when someone is watching this show, if they're on the other side of the aisle, the anti-choice side, and they're, and they're watching it and they're like, oh my gosh, 
well, see, see, this is why these clinics are evil, right? And it's like, well, that's because we were taking comedic liberties, and oops, now they're even more mad instead of being sort of more conscientious and understanding. And so there, that yeah, didn't happen. That's what we were trying to prevent. Right. That's what we were trying to avoid. And so, um, I'm again ever so grateful for Margaret to always be keeping it deeply in reality, even while these characters are a little wackadoo, right, and out there, and we exaggerated these people. But people are wackadoo and out there. Mm-hmm. There are so many personalities. Yeah. Everywhere you go, you see people who don't conform to what we think of as Definitely. I think we touched on this earlier, but um, how has the experiences that you have had influenced the concept and the stories that you created for both seasons of the show? I mean, completely. That, that's why it was so important to us um, and so personal for us to tell these stories um, because we really felt like, well, if we don't have stories to relate to, then that means thousands and thousands and millions of other women also don't have stories that they relate to, so they will be isolated with their experiences. And so the goal really was to make everyone who saw it feel like they have somebody that they know who this happened to um, with lots of different things. Even if they haven't personally had an abortion, suddenly they know all these people on TV who have. And that really normalizes it. So it was really taking our experiences and thinking, well, if it happened to us, then surely other people have been having the same experience too. And the truth of it is, I didn't talk about my abortion for a very long time. Um, The timing was poor. My um, grandmother had just died. And so while my parents are very pro-choice and now know about it and are totally fine with it, at the time, I couldn't exactly call my mom and say, oh, hey, mom, I need to have an abortion. And so I didn't tell her. And so then I didn't tell anyone, and um, I spent my junior high and high school living in a sort of conservative community in Texas before I left and moved to Chicago, and then now to LA. And and in that community, you do not talk about abortion, and so I just sort of didn't talk about it. And then when I would bring it up, it would be sort of in that whispered, hushed tone of like, I had an abortion. Did you have an abortion? Do you know anyone who's had an abortion? And I hated that I was carrying around this backpack of shame about this very funny thing that happened to me that I was very grateful for because my abortion really was very funny and I was so grateful that I got to have one and so like Margaret was saying that informed us completely in saying my goodness how many more women are walking around in the world with this heavy heavy backpack of shame about this thing that they don't have to be ashamed of and they can oh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was not carrying a backpack of shame at all. No. I immediately went on. I actually started a blog about it is while it was happening. Like, when I found out I was pregnant and I couldn't find any stories that were like me, I decided to blog about it. And I did it anonymously because um, I was nervous. Of, um, I didn't want anyone to come after me. I was worried about their reactions. Um, and there was actually a lot of hate. On it. And this was several years ago, and so this was before really people started talking about it. And 
that thought it was really important to be able to tell my story as it was going on. And what's been interesting over the past few years is that it used to come up in conversation, and I've, I've never shied away from talking about it. So if someone was like, oh, when I was pregnant, I would be like, oh, well, when I was pregnant, and they're like, do you have kids? And I would be like, no, I had an abortion. And that would kind of shut down the conversation. And now it no longer does. Now someone else will be like, oh, me too, or oh, me too. So it's really interesting the way that has changed over the past few years as well, and I hope it continues to move in that direction. And again, I didn't talk about it because... I couldn't find any outlets where people were comfortably talking about abortion. So I didn't have an example to know that it's okay to comfortably talk about abortion. In the last three years, there have been more um, positive abortion stories portrayed in television. But even then, we can probably count them on like two hands, right? The amount of, of times that abortion was portrayed positively in the media. And so... You know, as a, as a young woman, I was walking around being like, well, no one talks about this in a positive way, so I guess I'm not supposed to. Yeah. And that's really important for us to believe. And you, you both have done a tremendous job doing exactly that through Control-Alt-Delete. You've, you've balanced it perfectly with the comedy and especially with the message that you're trying to send is that it's okay to not feel ashamed about this and... I really think that a lot of people will get something out of this, especially those who watch. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope so. Yeah. Now, compared to season one, the production style and process for making Control-Alt-Delete has been boosted considerably. What helped you to improve the quality of the show and of its production? Well, I think it's really a two-parter. We learned a lot of things and we had more money. Uh, so, so we, from season one, we, I mean, we were really proud of what we did, but then we learned a lot about how we wanted to do it differently, um, especially in terms of production values. So then we, because season one was successful and, um, and had the Emmy nomination and a bunch of press, um, we were able to raise more money for season two and we were able to hire a bigger crew. We were able to, um, rent better equipment. Uh, and so that all really contributed towards the higher production value. Yeah. And also by that time, we had been living in LA for a little bit longer, so we had a, a, a stronger network of people that we can say, hey, we're looking for a, uh, a female gaffer who can, you know, uh, for, for a cast that is all the different colors, so we need this person to be able to like people in a really, really good way. Um, who do you know, right? And and also between season, the making of season one and the making of season two, both of us were involved in a bunch of other productions and learned a lot more about you know, filmmaking in general. And so that just empowered us to be able to have you know a, a clearer vision of how we wanted to do visual storytelling. Because you know, as as you grow as an artist, you don't know what you don't know, yeah. right? So we. We just, we just learned a lot more between two seasons. Yeah, so we had more like, experience and more money. So both of those were helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and it's especially helpful that you had a diverse cast and crew to make it all possible. Absolutely. Who do you think would like to watch this show, and are there any other comedies you would compare it to? Yeah, so we have found that in general... Uh, women between the ages of 29 and 45 who are college educated are our pr 
binary audience. But what we're really hoping is that um, anyone who watches it will find someone and something to relate to, whether it's a story or whether it's a character. Um, our hope is that anyone will be able to find something new, to relate to it, to learn from it, uh, to enjoy it. So that, that really is our hope. But yes, our primary audience um, tends to be overwhelmingly uh, female. Um, and did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Rooney? Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the hope is that everybody watches it so that we can make a social difference. But the reality is what Margaret said, right, which is that, you know, shows are made to cater to a specific audience, and our specific audience is, is those women. Um, but I also know that when we've showed the show and, and men have watched it, they love it also because uh, they have people that they can relate to on screen as well. Um, and as far as comps, it's interesting. We talk about this all the time because, uh, you know, people ask. And uh, we love the idea of somewhere between The Office and Scrubs. Right, so it's a workplace comedy. I mean, season two. Season one is a different story because it's an anthology, a character anthology. But season two is a workplace comedy. It's just not your typical workplace. Right. It is a very typical workplace, but not that we've seen in the media. And what do you feel sets Control Alt Delete apart from other comedies? Well, I think um, in terms of structure, it's a very traditional comedy. You know, we've really tried to do a very traditional workplace comedy, so structurally, it's not different. I think the thing that sets it apart is our willingness to tackle subjects that people are afraid to talk about um, and to look at them comedically and make jokes about them. And I think, I think, you know, not to toot our own horns, but to totally toot our own horns, the bravery of the subject matter is what sets it apart. Yeah. I think that being able to say, look, this is traditional storytelling. It's just that it's uh, not a traditional subject yeah. is, is really where we stand up. Finally, what do you overall hope for the show's success and what do you want people to get out of watching it? Well, our goal is absolutely to have a half hour comedy on a major studio or a network or a platform. Um, to really be able to explore this uh, in a longer form for a lot of seasons. And that does lead directly into what we hope people will get out of it because we, uh, if, if that happens, then we get to touch lots and lots and lots and lots and lots more people. And we really would love to, in a big way, change the conversation around this subject in this country. So... Um, so that's really what we would love to have happen with it. My thanks to Rona Geba and Margaret Ketch, the creators of Control-Alt-Delete, for joining me on this edition of the Viewfinder Podcast. You can watch the show on Vimeo at vimeo.com slash channels slash c-t-r-l-a-l-t delete show. I'm Chris Hadley. Thanks for listening.